There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Colin and today, Steve. Yeah. Steve, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks, Colin. Good to have you here. And last week, we finished off our mini-series, a bit of a technical mini-series that was focused on modern portfolio theory, something that I find quite interesting, but maybe others don't. So we completed five episodes and talked about things like risk, volatility, standard deviation, capital asset pricing model, arbitrage pricing theory, and finally, factors of return in the Fama French factor model. So if you're interested or anybody out there is interested, go back and listen to those ones because there's a lot of excellent information in those episodes for those that are inclined to dig deep into modern portfolio theory. Now, Steve, before we get started, I do want to call out something. We're in week two going on week three of the atrocities occurring in Ukraine and our thoughts go out to those that are impacted by it. We definitely are hoping for the best with it. But today we're taking a different direction. We're moving away from stock and bond market investing and we're looking at a different type of investment and that is purchasing or owning a franchise. And we're very happy to have Sam Kajai. Did I say that right? Kajai. Kajai. Ah, damn. It was close. I practiced it. From Lindsay McCarthy joining us for this discussion. Sam is a partner at Lynn Mac or Lindsay McCarthy and has a very unique background. And Sam, I know this is the pinnacle of your career when you're on the Free Lunch podcast. So <laughs> welcome to the show. Pleased to have you here. Awesome. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, really excited to be able to come here and do this with you guys. I think to help the audience kind of understand where we're headed with the purpose of this podcast, the goal of this is to describe at a high level what franchising is, what does it mean to franchise, what are some of the factors that relate to when someone's interested in franchising as a whole. And then I've come up with some questions that I often hear in my practice. Happy to share those with you guys and provide some feedback on that. Just to provide a little bit more background in terms of who I am. Oh, you're, we... you're beating us to the questions. Yeah, yeah. Steve, yeah, what's yeah, your I, first I, question? Well, my first question to you, <laughs> Sam, is I? tell us your story. Awesome. How'd you get to where you are now? Okay, so yeah, I'm a corporate commercial lawyer with about 13 years of experience now. I'm qualified in British Columbia and Alberta as a lawyer. I've been practicing in that area, plus M&A and securities and finance for basically the majority of my career. I am registered as a legal consultant and advocate in the registry of Dubai. So I worked in Dubai for a couple of years, but I have a specialty and a passion for franchising and trademarks, which is why I think I've been invited to come here. (laughs) Absolutely. And it's interesting you say that. I don't know if I've ever run into somebody who has a specialty in trademarks. So this is cool. Well, I find that the trademarking aspect goes hand in hand with franchising, especially when I'm acting for franchisor clients. There's often questions that come about, well, okay, so I'm about to franchise this brand to someone, but I need to protect it because that's part of the franchising bundle. I find that it goes hand in hand. Right on, right on. Gotcha. So tell me this then. So let's jump into it. How do we know if this is a good franchise to invest in? This is an interesting question. It tends to be a very subjective question. There's a number of things that I usually 
advise my clients to look into. So we're looking at this from the perspective of a prospective franchisee. We're thinking about someone, an audience member of yours, who is thinking about potentially taking their money, putting it into maybe the stock market, or comparing that and contrasting with putting it into a franchise instead. The question is, well, how do I know I'm investing into the right investment, really? There's multiple different things that your audience members can think about doing. The first, obviously, which actually applies to any kind of investment is due diligence. I would ask that the people that are interested look into the thing they're about to invest into and really do a lot of research. That can come in the form of a number of ways. Obviously, having the right professional advisors help you out from the banking and accounting, a consultant's perspective, and obviously from the legal perspective, that'll greatly help in identifying whether it's the right franchise. Other things that you can look at obviously include actual diligence in the process. So we can dive into some of the documents, but there's this thing called a franchise disclosure document that is required by law to be delivered to a prospective franchisee. That document is kind of like a prospectus, which some of your audience members would be very familiar with. It's a significant undertaking from a franchisor to provide all material facts in respect of the franchise to the franchisee so that the franchisee can really have a good sense of what they're getting themselves into. That document is your starting point in terms of reviewing and understanding what you're about to get yourself into. Other diligence that is usually very helpful in the context would be speaking to existing franchisees. It's a really good sign to see a franchisor have a long-standing reputation in the market. Obviously, multiple franchisees, especially franchisees that are in the jurisdictions that you're actually interested in setting up. That's also helpful. The FDD, the Franchise Disclosure Document that I refer to, at the back of it, a franchisor is required to identify its franchisees to you. And you can use that as the basis of reaching out to these different franchisees understanding how their experience has been. It's a very good sign if a franchisee is a multi-unit franchisee because to me that indicates that they've taken on the first franchise step, they've been successful in it, they've understood it, they've been able to replicate the process and now it's more of a formula for them rather than a brand new venture. This franchise disclosure document, when you describe it, it sounds a lot maybe like an offering memorandum or something like that, where it's just outlining the details of it. Does it get to the specificity of price and absolutely? Uh, yeah. So everything yeah, like what sort of things should people be looking at in that document? At a high level, that document is, yes, it's a significant undertaking for a franchisor to put together in the first place. The law says that that document needs to include all material facts in respect of the franchise and the franchisor that a franchisee would reasonably want to know in connection with their investment. That's a broad statement. What's a material fact in respect of a franchise? Well, it ends up, and there's the law also goes more granular in the regulations, but it ends up stating a number of headings that you see in the franchise disclosure document. And these headings are super helpful for any franchisee. Things like capital expenditures required for the franchise. The franchise is required to tell you line by line what type of fees you might be expected to pay. And this is not just fees to the franchisor, this is costs that you would undertake yourself to set up that franchise. So for example, if it's a gym franchisor and it's a gym franchise you're getting yourself into, there's going to be line items for equipment, gym stuff, fees, license fees, royalties, 
all the actual costs of setting up the business. So for example, you're going to need to hire a lawyer to hopefully help you with the incorporation process. There's probably accounting fees. There's a lease. There's employees that you're going to have to employ. Well, there's towel service. There's towel service, exactly. <laughs> the towel service tends to be the more expensive part of a gym <laughs> membership. I don't know why that's true. So yeah, it does provide. But again, keep in mind, and I mean, this is we're just kind of tongue in cheek, but it's all material facts. So perhaps the towel cost is not that material for a franchisor to disclose. Not sure. Depends how fancy these towels are. And do they leave like a percentage gap for things that just, I don't know, like can't really be detailed to that? level? That's a great question. So this goes to the next really important comment that kind of plays into this question about diligence. So sure, you as a franchisee now have an FDD in your hand. It's a 300 page document. It starts detailing all these things, but all of these have to be based on certain assumptions that the franchisor is making. They are not in a position to provide you with a FDD that is tailored to your specific jurisdiction. So For example, if you've got a franchisor that's headquartered out of Toronto and has done most of its operations in Ontario, and you're about to set up a franchise in Red Deer, that FDD is going to be based on the assumptions that you're setting up a franchise in the locations that the franchisor is well aware of. They aren't required by law to sit there and actually true up that franchise disclosure document for your specific jurisdiction. So going back to your comment about Are there things that they don't describe? Well, you have to read the fine print, unfortunately, or have your advisors read the fine print. And often the fine print will tell you some of the assumptions that apply. So it'll say, here's a bunch of the costs. Assumption is that these costs relate to this specific jurisdiction. So then what's required and is mandatory, really, from my perspective, is you take that, that is a guidance document. You use that with your advisors and with your own diligence, and you apply your other metrics for your specific location to understand, okay, well, there might be other things that are missing because this is not meant to be specific to where I'm actually setting up. And there's obviously other factors that you can't even relay in an FDD, such as the business acumen of the franchisee himself or herself. So this is the business experience of the person who's purchasing the franchise. Yeah, exactly. Like the business experience of that person buying the franchise is obviously going to play out in how the costs are for the franchise. For example, if this is someone who understands that franchise business very well, then maybe there's less of a need to hire these particular people. Perhaps this person is a personal trainer. They need fewer personal trainers. I don't know. But that is obviously a factor that plays out in why the FDD's assumptions and the FDD's disclosure still have to be vetted in the context of the person looking to take on the franchise, which brings us, actually, I'll go back to you. There's another comment I want to make about projection earnings, but I suspect we might get there. Well, that's okay. Well, so for our listeners, what's a typical franchise fee that someone setting up a franchise would look at? Not necessarily a gym with towel service, but just in general. So the franchise fee, there is no typical franchise fee. And why I say that is because it's extremely variable and it's really based on market demand. What is a franchise fee in the first place? This is typically a non-refundable fee that a franchisor will ask for a franchisee to pay upfront right on signing of the franchise agreement. And the idea is this is the initial fee that the franchisor requests to be paid for allowing this franchisee to come into this system in the first place. The reason why it's there's no typical number that I would say is because it just depends on who this franchisor is. And often this is one item in the document that can be negotiated with the franchisor. So 
apply the concepts of supply and demand and you understand why it's variable. So if we've got a very well-established franchisor and we've got a person who's brand new to franchising and just wants one franchise, and we're talking about a well-established franchisor with, let's say, thousands of franchises across the world. Like Blockbuster. Sure, which is a wonderful <laughs> example. Thank you for bringing that one up. But yeah, let's take a less bankrupt entity. But if you take that as an example, and I don't even know if Blockbuster was a franchise. Not I, sure. don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> but let's take one of those entities as an example. That entity may not need you as a franchisee. So if you sit there and go, well, this franchise fee is too much. They'll say, that's fine. We've got multiple other applicants. Okay, I have a better example of this. Because you and I chatted about this one time. Sure. We talked about McDonald's. I saw some ad somewhere, social media somewhere, and it was just a follow the link sort of thing. And basically it came down to, do you have $700,000 of cash available to invest? And if you did, it let you go on with the process. And if you didn't, it just stopped you right there. Yeah, that's an excellent example. So McDonald's is well-established. They have a brand that's recognized worldwide. If you're a unit franchisee looking to acquire one franchise from McDonald's, I suspect you're going to have a hard time negotiating away from those terms. The reason being is that they have thousands of franchisees that are already subject to those. There's a system in place, which brings us to the bigger question of what is a franchise and why get into it. But there's a system in place And the laws of supply and demand probably suggest that in that context, McDonald's doesn't need to negotiate on its franchise fee. So it will set its franchise fee at whatever the market is willing to pay for a McDonald's franchise. I hope that answers that question, but that tends to be the convoluted lawyer way of saying it depends. So so now you've paid this franchise fee, what sort of ongoing costs or royalties are you looking at paying? Yeah, so this also obviously varies. The reason it varies is because this one is based on what it is that the franchisor will provide to you as support. And this is in respect of advertising support or operational support or anything going on ongoing during the term of this franchise. Typically, I see a fee of around 4 to 6%, but it doesn't mean that it can't be negotiated and it doesn't mean that it can't be lower or higher, depending on, again, the costs that the franchisor views it will incur in connection with having you come on as a franchisee and help you along in the process during the term. Right. Let's say you buy this franchise, whatever it is, and you're a creative person by nature. Do you have flexibility to add creativity to the business that you've just acquired? Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to answer that with an example of a case that I was working on a few years back. So I had a client who was a franchisee They had a franchise that they'd been operating for years. The typical terms or length of time that a contract for a franchise agreement stays in place ranges, again, but it can be 5 to 10 to 20 years long. So this person had been, I think they entered into a 10-year contract. They're a few years in. Everything was going well. They identified a source of product that they needed for their operations, which could have been sourced from China as opposed to source from the local suppliers that the franchisor had identified for that franchisee. The cost of that source product was about half of what he had to pay in respect of the locally sourced product. He brought a few samples of the product in. It was better quality than what he had purchased from the local supplier. So he offered that to the franchisor and said, like, look at this. Like, I've used my creativity 
and my connections, and I've sourced for us a way better way to do this. And the franchisor said, thank you, no. So that was tough for him. And then he came to me and we were discussing what his options were at that point. But that was very difficult because from his mindset, he took his business, he used his creativity, he used his entrepreneurial drive, he identified a better way to doing things. From his perspective, this was literally the better way to do it. There was no other option that was better. And yet, for no reason, it seemed that it was shot down. I would say, though, not for no reason, in that that company, that bigger entity, has environmental, social, and governance aspects around its brand. And I'm just guessing, but if you like, let every franchisee sort of adjust products, you're actually adjusting the ESG of the larger entity. Absolutely. Like that's definitely a factor that a franchisor considers. The franchisor, so this goes back to the comment I made earlier, the investment into a franchise is an investment into a system. And it's an investment into an existing network of franchisees. As a result, this is not a good investment for someone who wants to take things potentially off the beaten path or think of things outside of the box. A franchisor is more than happy to consider outside of the box thinking, but in ultimately deciding whether or not to permit it to be executed or implemented, it will not just take into consideration the desires of that one franchisee. And just keep in mind, and I mean, maybe this is a skeptic in me, but a franchisor also has approved suppliers because typically a franchisor will receive certain other benefits by working with those like approved a suppliers. I, I, I specifically <laughs> avoided the words kickback, but yeah. Oh, I was talking about something else, okay, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah, let's call it a kickback. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to surmise as to why that franchisor didn't permit that particular thing to go ahead. But at the end of the day, it's a contract where you as a franchisee are agreeing to come into this system. If you have a better way of doing that type of business, then maybe a franchise is not the right type of business. Keep in mind as well, and this is really important. So when I was discussing with this client what his options were, it was important to note that after years and years of operating in that business, he now actually had a good sense of how to operate this without the franchisor. But the intellectual property that he acquired was because of the franchisor. So he did not have this experience beforehand. But after years of being in this operation and understanding what the franchisor had previously acquired and accumulated as far as their IP, he now had this know-how. But the problem is typically franchise agreements also prevent you as a franchisee from competing against the franchisor in the same space. Gotcha. So he was subject to a restrictive covenant, which maybe we need to do a podcast about restrictive covenants, but he was subject to a restrictive covenant that basically said, you can't just terminate this franchise agreement and go out on your own now and do it a better way. Well, have you seen the movie? Sorry, Steve, I'm no, monopolizing no. this. Have you seen the movie years ago, Coming to America with Eddie Murphy? I, I haven't, no. But Steve, you've like seen it. Right? Oh, God. How have you not seen it? Oh, well, yeah, you, you got to watch this because in the movie, Eddie Murphy's girlfriend's dad runs a restaurant in New York called McDowell's. Okay, good. And it's competing, obviously, directly against McDonald's. Right. And there's, it's, it's pretty funny because they, they really push the, I can't remember, like McDonald's, the golden arches and McDowell's is the, the golden arch. Golden arch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, I guess we take that and we add an additional layer, which is 
was McDowell subject to a non-competition agreement in the first place? And I suspect in that case, they weren't. They weren't an existing franchisee of McDonald's who then decided to part ways and set up a McDowell's. They were just someone who was like, hey, if we take advantage of this. So that's a different type of action. If you're someone who is an existing franchisee of McDonald's, then you take off and you set up McDowell's, you've got additional layers of concern there. Well, I would recommend you watch this movie just for reference sake. This is my best takeaway from this podcast (laughs) is I've got a movie to watch tonight. (laughs) What do you got there, Steve? Here's a question. Steve. Well, why should we hire a franchise lawyer if we're looking at setting up a franchise? Yeah. So this is my favorite part of the podcast here where I get to plug why I'm important as a person here. There's a number of reasons why a franchise lawyer, and specifically I use the words franchise lawyer, because there's a lot of lawyers that practice corporate law, and yet there are specific things that a franchise lawyer may be able to help with that a corporate lawyer per se can't help with. And I say that knowing that I'm a corporate lawyer as well. One of the things that comes to mind very quickly is the franchise world in Canada is not that big. And often I'll have franchise clients that ask me to look into franchise negotiations with existing franchisers that I've already dealt with. So by product of my existing relationships and arrangements with other franchisors, I tend to have a good sense of what we can negotiate. And that alone is worth it. That's helpful. Obviously, what the franchise lawyer will help you do is they'll help on the diligence front. They can identify the things that will help you identify if this is the right investment for you. They'll help you review that 300-page franchise disclosure document that I was referring to. They'll help you review and potentially negotiate the franchise agreement itself. And ultimately, the goal with a review from a franchise lawyer is not to approach it like any other corporate agreement. And the reason I say that is because often I'll see a desire to try to really revise a lot of the franchise agreement's terms. And this is difficult for a franchisor to accept. Because as we stated earlier, you're buying into a system and a number of other franchisees have actually already signed on to this system in the way that it is. And specifically, a franchisor will often come back to you and say, the fact that I won't negotiate is actually good for you as a franchisee. And why is it good? It means that you know you're being treated similar to everyone else. Now, whether that's actually true or not, like you'll often see in franchise agreements or disclosure documents, it'll say, notwithstanding anything we've said to you, just so you know, we're able to negotiate away from our standard terms if we need to. But anyways, all that going aside, what I'm trying to say is it's not helpful to sit there and try to review the franchise agreement and mark it up in the way that you normally would in a corporate commercial arrangement. Instead, what I try to do with my franchise clients is identify to them the things that they need to know so that when they go to sign the agreement as is or with minor revisions, at least they're well aware of what they're getting themselves into. So it's more of a eyes wide open approach. And that I think is significant for a franchisor to help you out. Well, I mean, otherwise they're just going into it blind. You're going into it with a bunch of faith that it's just going to work out. It's a serious contractual arrangement. Yeah. It's a long-term contract. It often comes with not only those restrictive covenants. So if you're a gym person and you sign on to a gym contract, franchise agreement, you're prevented arguably from doing any kind of gym on your own for that period of time, plus potentially two years after you get out of that. But not only that, but often franchise agreements come with personal guarantees as well. So it's not that you can just kind of defer the liability because it's a company and it's a shell 
it's a serious commitment. And I think just like any serious commitment in your life, you ought to get the right help with it. It's like entering a marriage, so to speak, right? (laughs) Exactly. Are there serial franchisors that you deal with? Like people that own, and I'm not recommending any of these companies. I have to give that a full disclosure, but like maybe they own an A&W and they own a McDonald's and they own a Burger King or My clients from the franchisee side tend to be in one of two buckets. One is the brand new franchisee who's never done any franchising at all and really needs a lot of assistance to get going. And then on the other side, it's the multi-unit franchisees who have so many franchises that have a hard time just to figure out what's going on and which one's which. Both clients are awesome to work with. It's just they have different needs in terms of what they're looking for. Right on, right on. No multi-unit blockbuster franchises. (laughs) Well, I bet you there was. Probably. Yeah, those people have a different financial concern these days. Like they have no money. So Steve, any last question for Sam for today or no? No? Should we just get into the speed round? Yeah, I think so, Colin. Okay, listen, you've done all the heavy lifting now and we're going to have you back. I hope you're okay with that. I'm more than happy to do it. And we definitely are. Steve, are we promoting Sam and his firm, Lindsay McCarthy? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course we are. Of course, of course we are. We are. Yeah. They're excellent people that we deal with on a number of legal subjects. So for fun, Steve, why don't you do the speed round right. with Sam? All right, Sam, what do you do for fun when you're not working? I was thinking of making this dumb joke where I was <laughs> going to say that I usually talk to my husky dog. I've talked to her so much that I think she could talk her way out of a speeding ticket now. <laughs> like she, she really listens intently to everything I say. She doesn't have a lot to say back initially, but later on she gives it to me. So I spend a lot of time with her. Obviously, I love the gym. Don't love the towel service issues, but <laughs> otherwise love the gym. Do a lot of that. And yeah, really looking for the weather to turn around here so we have good stuff to do over the summer. Gotcha. Yeah. Any books you're reading right now? I read law books. And by that, I mean like not academic law books, like I mean case law and publications and law and stuff that's so boring that I don't even want to respond to this question. <laughs> so, okay. That. Well then, what shows are you binging? Because we know you're not, we oh. haven't watched Coming to America yet. So what, what else do you watch? Oh yeah. no. Okay. 90 Day Fiance. Terrible. Ooh. Oh, okay. Ooh. Terrible. I can't believe we're talking about that. So- <laughs> Probably the, I can't believe you're admitting this. Oh, I, but. I don't care. I'm willing to do that. <laughs> so probably the worst show I've ever seen in my life, but it's just so bad. It's so good. Oh yeah, I don't yeah. even know how to explain that. Comment. I get that. I get that. I know my wife and I used to watch like The Bachelor years ago. And for me, it was the same thing. It was like, God, I do not want to watch yes. this, but I don't want to miss an episode. That's right. So I find that that show is best with a group of people or yeah. at least one other person. So you can sit there and then make fun of it afterwards. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that tends to be a good pastime of mine for sure. Right on. Anything else? That's it. That's it. You see, yeah. you, you passed the speed round passed. with flying yep. colors. Awesome. Sam, thanks so much for joining us today. Really appreciate that. That was a fun conversation. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys. All and, right, Sam. Uh, well, yeah. Got to make sure you come back. Oh, yeah. Well, like maybe even next week. We'll yeah. see. We'll see Sounds what the good. schedule looks like. But- All right. Well, Steve, and thank you for joining the show today. Colin, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was nice that Greg decided to take the day off so we could get back to our time. That's right. (laughs) Just joking, Greg. We miss you. All right. Till next time. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast.
The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.